So I pretty much started working um, as soon as I was able to. Um, when I'm the youngest of four in my family, and I grew up watching my siblings all work and work really hard. And so as soon as I was able to, I got my first um, real job when I was 14, and I was a soccer referee. And being a soccer referee is not really fun. Um, it's basically a glorified babysitter that's got to deal with parents as well. Um, and it takes certification and classes and um, costs money to be able to make money, which no 14-year-old wants to do. Um, but I, I started working as a soccer ref, and my parents were willing to get me where I needed to be, and my siblings were able to bring me to the games when I needed to be, and so I, so I had my first job. But pretty soon I wanted a job that would actually pay more and treat me not like a child. And, and so um, I started my own little business, and I was doing wedding videography, which I thought was a word, but apparently I made it up at some point. But uh, videography, I, 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 people would hire me to film their weddings as a 15-year-old. Which is stupid. <laughs> Don't hire a 15-year-old to film your wedding. Um, and, and now that I think about it, like, what, what clientele am I trying to attract if that would hire a 15-year-old to film their wedding? Like the most important day in their life with their spouse, and they want a 15-year-old to document it. Um, just, it. It makes no sense. And I was using a computer that should not have ran Adobe on it, and... I had a license of Adobe that I shouldn't have actually had. And just everything around working this job was about me wanting to work for myself and make, um, I think I was charging like $400 for a wedding, which is why people were hiring me, because it was cheap. But it wasn't good. And um, anyway, I had several gigs, and people were hiring me. And then I realized how stupid it was and how much pressure I was putting on myself. And so I got out of that job and said I never want to make videos ever again, which is why we have Sherilyn because I, I, I don't make videos anymore. Yes, I know how to, but no, I won't. Um, so, and so after I did that, then I got my, my first real job where I actually had a boss, and so this was at a uh, bar and grill called Milwaukee Grill in Wisconsin. And my sister, my, one of my sisters, she at one point had a boyfriend who was the owner owner's son of this restaurant, and so she started get, getting this job at a restaurant, and she pretty quickly was like, she had to skip all the steps because she was dating the owner's son, and so she didn't have to start doing the dishes. She could just start, like, higher up. And, and so I saw her and, and all the money she was bringing home, and then my brother, three years older than me, he got the job from her. And, and all of a sudden, there was this reputation at the restaurant saying, hey, Petries, hire them because they're honest and they work hard. And, and, and so I was able to get a job from my brother at this restaurant, and um, I wasn't pretty enough, and so I had to start as a busboy. And, and, and starting as a busboy, um, it's a hard job. Pretty much when you're the busboy, you, you, you do what no one else wants to do. And, and in our case, we had a, a, sept, a sewage something. I don't know how the plumbing works, but the basement would flood all the time of the restaurant, and so the busboy's got to go and deal with all the floating poop. And um, if there was a nasty job, you guys like roasted chicken? Do, do you know how roasted chicken's made? So, so, so it comes in this like five-gallon bucket, and it's all like beat up with a broken, like all the bones are already super tenderized and chopped up inside of it. And it's this nasty job where the busboy, some poor busboy, is in the basement of a kitchen where sometimes poop floats, and they're breading and marinating this chicken and getting it ready for all you guys to spend a ton of money on. And, and it was, it was this, just this gross job of being a busboy. And then. You're also the ones who have to be there when they open, and you have to be there until they, you're the first one there and the last one to leave, and you don't have any respect, and if you don't do your job, you're disposable, so we'll just get a new busboy. But, but this was the job that I got, and, and I got it because I saw my brother, he, he started as busboy, but then he became expediter, and then he was the host, and then he was the waiter, and then he was the bartender, and then he started sub, subbing in for the supervisor every so often. And so I'm like, look, there's so much money to be found here, and I've got a reputation, so I, I want this. And so I, I stuck it out. But there was this particular time when I was the, the this doing the dishes and... It was, I think it was like a Friday night, and I had plans that evening to go out with my girlfriend somewhere. Yes, Jenny, she was my girlfriend. I, I always referred to my girlfriend, but I started dating her when I was 15, and so if I refer to my girlfriend, it's her. But um, the, 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 the manager says, hey, Brian, you're staying to close tonight. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm only scheduled to nine. I'm not, st no, I, I got plans. And, and something happened with the closing bus boy, and he had to go home, and so... 
someone's got to do the job. Someone's got to work. And so it was my job to do it. And, and that he, he didn't ask me, do, am I willing to do this? He didn't ask me, do I have the time to do this? It was just, hey, if you want to keep your job, you're closing. And I remember just feeling so squashed. Like, like what, what are you going to do? You, you just take it. And, but I was bitter. And my mom always tells me that um, I wear the emotions on the sleeves of my shirt, and everyone in the room knows how I'm feeling, which is a blessing and a curse. But I, I did the job, but people knew I wasn't happy about it. Um, the, 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 there, there was another situation. When I, I was doing the dishes, I was clearing the table, I was doing the grunt work that people didn't want to do, and apparently my emotions were also visible that day. And um, in, in this case, I was tolerating the work, but I didn't want to be there. I didn't think I was getting paid enough, didn't think people were tipping enough, didn't... Uh, when am I going to get promoted? Don't they know who I am? And I was just kind of like, me, me, me. And, and, and then the owner of the restaurant, which normally I don't deal with him because he, he owns the place. Why would he be hanging out with the busboys? But he, he, he said, Brian, we, we got to talk. And so he took me and, and we talked and he pointed out one of the other busboys. Well, I guess he's more of a bus man, but I don't think that's the term. But one of the other busboys, his name was Esteban. And Esteban didn't speak very much English. And if the restaurant was open, he was there. And if he wasn't there, it's because he was at his other restaurant working a second job. And he was also the busboy there. But he was always smiling, always joyful, always happy to be at work. And the, the owner of the restaurant, he told me, because of Esteban's language barrier, he'll never be able to work in the front of the house. Like this, this is what he's, he gets. And look how joyful he is. Look how grateful he is that he has a job. And, and, and then there was me crabby and bitter and prideful, too good to be washing dishes, too good to submit to the managers. And, and he told me, do you know what that communicates to Esteban when I think that I'm too good for this job, but this is what he's, like, like he's sending money home to Mexico, and this is his life, and he's joyful and thankful to even be here, and then I'm like, I don't want to do this, and I'm a 16-year-old kid. And, and it just kind of like instantly humbled me as saying, well, how am I behaving here? Like how visible, what am I communicating with the way that I work? All that to say, parents, if your kid wants to get a job, let them be a busboy. It shapes them and teaches them how to work. Um, it, it's a good job for kids, um, although I still hate washing dishes today. Um, but, but I think this is a lesson that we all learn at some point in our lives. At, at, at some point we learn, hopefully sooner than later, that there's a structure that we live, and no matter what the work is, we have bosses and we have authorities, and if we don't like it, well, don't keep that job. But... We, we have our own work and authority and goals and attitudes, and, and, and these are all the types of things we're talking about today here. And, and I think it's super applicable to, to how we live our lives. Um, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about the book Ephesians. Well, I don't even know how long we've been in Ephesians. But the last several weeks, we've been talking about Ephesians, particularly the concept of obedience. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15... I don't think my Bible has Ephesians... Hopefully you guys beat me. Ah, found it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, it says, that was chapter 2, big 5, little 15. Pay careful attention on how to live your life, not as unwise people, but as wise. Pay careful attention for how you live your life then, which means, given everything else that Paul's already talked about, be careful how you live your life. And then he spends a bunch of time and he unpacks what it means to live your life out given everything else that he already taught. And so then he, he, he talked about um, wives and he talked about husbands and he talked about children and, and love and honor and all this stuff. And, and it all comes back to being careful how you live your lives out. And then we get to a um, category that we tend to skip over because we don't have it today, and that's in chapter 6, verse, starting in verse 5. And so open your Bibles if you're not there. Um, I'm going to be primarily in the CSB instead of the ESV because I like it better and I like to be unique, but it's pretty much the same, but I'll read both. It says, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work as... Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ and do the, God's will from your heart. 
Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. The ESV, it says it this way, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this you'll receive back from the Lord, whether it's you know, bond servant or he's free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. If you've been in the church for some time, you've heard this before, and you know how we teach it now. Uh, we, we normally contextualize it, meaning employer-employee relationships, and basically means work hard and be nice. But before, before we even get there, we, we, we need to understand with a, like a, a eyes wide open, say, what, what is Paul trying to get at? And for that, we need to understand slavery and bond servants and what that all actually means. And so here we go. Um, the recipients of Paul's letter uh, to Ephesians, they all have one common trait. Do you remember what it was? They're all Christians. They, they all claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so because they claim Jesus as Lord, here there's certain things about how they're supposed to live. But otherwise, there's all sorts of different differences about who they are and how they live. And so the, the, there's ma- male and female, rich and poor, children and parents, husbands, wives, slave owners, slaves. And as Christians, they all come together, they worship regularly to, to learn about God and his kingdom. And the question they have in their mind is, okay, just like you guys, how do I take this and apply it to my life? And so that's what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to say, what does it look like to live as a Christian in my role, in, in my home, in our society? How does the Lordship of Christ transform how I live my life day to day? And so basically, it, it's okay, I'm a Christian now, so now what? What do I do? And so in, in this section, Paul assumes the Roman socioeconomic power structure as what it is, meaning he doesn't offer a critique of what the society's system is. He, he just says, this is how life is. People are living in a society where slavery was the normal thing. That, that, that was it. In fact, slavery was part of Judaism since the very beginning. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all had slaves. And at the point where Paul was writing, Rome's population was a third slaves. And, and at... If, Wealthy landowners who are farmers, they might have hundreds of slaves. And if you are not so wealthy, but you still own some land, chances are you probably had one or two slaves to help you around the house. And Paul, he also assumed that Jesus was coming back soon, like we do, right? Except when Paul assumes Jesus is coming back soon, he's thinking like, soon, not 2,000 years later. And so as he's thinking that Jesus is coming back soon, he's not going to try to critique the entire social system that Jesus is going to solve when he comes back. Instead, he says, this is the life we have right now. How do we live in it as followers of Christ? And so we don't see this massive critique about slavery. Instead, we see Paul saying, here's how you live your life as a Christian, as a slave or with slaves, which some people have taken throughout history and said, okay, the Bible says slavery is good, which it doesn't. It just says this is the way life was. And so we'll get to that. Slavery, don't walk away today saying, we learned about slavery and how Jesus loves slaves, and you should too. That, that, that's not the message. The message is, is that slavery was the, the, the ownership of people against their will, and they didn't have rights, and it was deprivation of freedom, and it was bad, and, and, and we're, we're not going there. We're not, we're not for slavery, guys. Okay? Good. Um, and so Paul, he says, slavery is just the way it was. When we read things about husbands as heads of the families, or we read about wives submitting, or we read about children obeying, each one of those things, there's a theological basis, a theological reason for why they ought to behave in that way. What happens with slavery is there's no theological basis. It's just, okay, you guys have slaves, here's how you live. It's not defended theologically, it's not, don't, don't be that guy that takes the Bible and says it's for slaves, and so therefore I can't worship that God. It, it's not. Um, even just talking about slavery, it, it triggers us to think about the practice of slavery that was in the New World. Um, but slavery in the Roman world was so very different. Um, and, and so we have to understand, if we want to understand what Paul's writing about, about slaves, it'd be inappropriate or irresponsible for us to, to read 17th century, 19th century American slavery in the context of Roman slavery. And so what, what are the differences? 
Uh, first, Roman era slavery had nothing to do with race. There, there, there was no particular group of people or race of people who were the ones who were enslaved. Everyone was enslaved. Every country, every nationality within the entire area had slaves of some sort. And, and the most common source of slaves were from prisoners of war. And so in the first century AD, there's this guy named Pompey, and he conquered Israel in the first century, and he brought thousands of Jewish prisoners to Rome who became slaves. And so we have all these different slaves in Rome who were Jewish because prisoners of war. There's a smaller number of them who were abandoned as infants, and if you have, find an infant, raise them up, they're your slave now. Cool. Not cool. Wrong word. Sorry. Um, uh, and then there, were, there was another group of slaves, and, and, and these are the people who were sla- sold themselves into slavery because they were in some sort of debt, and they couldn't live their life as they um, were hoping to, and they found themselves in a bad situation. So a solution for their day was to sl- sell themselves into slavery um, for a period of time and then um, pay off that debt. Others were actually captured, though, and so the Bible refers to professional slave traders, and so that was a thing as well when people would go and capture slaves. And and, and so there's the whole gamut, but for the most part, most slaves were prisoners of war. Um, The the second difference is that slaves could reasonably expect to be freed at some point in their life. Um, In fact, most people, most slaves could expect to be freed by the time that they were 30 years old. And, And this was so prevalent that Caesar Augustus in the first century AD, he declared that you have to be 30 years old to be declared free. No, no more letting these, these slaves get off too soon. And, and even so, he limited how many slaves were able to be freed each year. And, and so that there is this culture where if you're a slave, the chances are at some point you, you could be freed from it. Uh, and then also there's this whole thing where slave owners would, if a certain task was done in a way that was exceptionally well, and they, they weren't dumb. They said, we want more of that, and so they would give them money as a reward, and then they would often save that money up uh, and use it to purchase their freedom. All this in contrast to slavery in the new world. If you're a slave in the new world, you're a slave. That's it. Third, many slaves worked in a variety of special positions that had responsibility. Um, Slaves were confined somewhere in, in agriculture and manufacturing. Domestic duties in life was really, really hard. But others were doctors or teachers or writers or accountants or agents or bailiffs, um, overseers, secretaries, sea captains. There's all sorts of different roles that were responsible. When I grow up, I want to be this type roles that slaves were filling. And, and how do they get there? Well, they had training. Um, in the New World, we, we didn't train slaves to educate them. We, we, we They were... Um, it, in the Roman world, it was seen as beneficial to the master and the slave to train them, to get them as smart, as trained as possible, and, and use them as they could. This seems like I'm objectifying them, and it feels naughty. <sighs> Forgive me for that. Anyway, the, the, the masters, they saw it as a wise business strategy, and, and so we had slaves who were educated, and they saw themselves as having the opportunity to be freed someday. And... and then when they'd be freed, they, they often became Roman citizens as well, which gives them all sorts of rights and all sorts of responsibilities. And, and then they would often form sort of a client relationship with their previous slave owner, some sort of working relationship. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going as far away as possible now. It was, okay, I understand how life works in this neighborhood and how to do this job that I've been doing for the last 30 years anyways, and so I want to keep doing it. And, and so the culture was a lot different. Now, don't hear me saying that ancient slavery was more humane than New World slavery, and so therefore it's okay, because it's still the coercive ownership of another person. They they still had few legal rights. They lacked honor. They were subject to whatever punishment the owners thought that they deserved, no matter how uh, messed up it was. Uh, There was no legally sanctioned marriage or family bonds. They they couldn't keep their children that was born to them. Their slave owners could separate their marriage if it seemed like a good business choice for them. Um, They're not allowed to own any property. Few, if any, would ever want to willingly put themselves in the position of slavery. And, And so it's in this context that Paul writes, and he casts a vision for how slaves are supposed to live now that they are Christians and are trying to figure out what Christian life looks like. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, our, our first verse for today, it says, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. 
So previously, Paul, he, he spoke to husbands and wives and children how to live, and now he's speaking to the slaves directly, which um, a third of the population of Rome was were slaves, and so um, it makes sense that he would address them, but at the same time, they're slaves. Why is Paul even writing to them? They can't read it. Well, they're educated. But, but it's shocking that there's even a section on slavery. And, and, and what we see is that there's, there's like five or six different ways that Paul says, here's how you should live out your relationship based on belonging to Christ. Because you're Christ's slave primarily, this is how you're supposed to live. And, and so the first thing that we just read was, obey your masters with fear and trembling. The last time I saw someone with fear and trembling was Seth. And he got in trouble, and he knew I was upset. And he looked at me, and there's this fear and trembling, and there's like this period of 45 seconds when no matter what I'd say, he would listen and obey. Fear and trembling, right? He knows that there's a spanking coming. And, and I, sometimes I think that's what we read this to say. Hey, slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. But if we were to look at this whole concept of fear and trembling and, and what else, where else is being used in the Bible, um, it's used in a variety of different ways. Um, Colossians chapter 3, it, it says, Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Um, focus. Yeah, other places, fear and trembling. In, in Psalm chapter 2, there's it, it uses this phrase, and it talks about how... Um, it's supposed to be the way that we serve the Lord with this fear and trembling. Um, and, and Philippians chapter 2, it says that it, this is the way that we should work out our salvation in the new covenant. And Paul says that he approached the Corinthians when he went to go preach to them in weakness and in fear with much trembling. Um, it, it, the Corinthian church was supposed to receive Titus with fear and trembling. I, I think it's too far off the mark to say that the, the type of attitude that slaves are supposed to have to their masters is fear and trembling with like this sort of terror that they're going to be whooped if they don't listen. That, that, that's not the image that Paul's trying to get at. Instead, it's much closer to the mark. The, the New Living Translation translates it as obeying of a deep respect and fear. Um, it also says they should respond with the sincerity of their hearts. This means without any improper motive. Purity of, in their intentions. No scheming, no deceit, um, no off-base motive. Instead, obey as you would obey Christ. Paul knows that his audience he's writing to are Christians, proclaiming Christians who, if by the way, if you're a Christian, that means your allegiance is to Christ. He's Lord and King and Savior, not just one of those. And so he's not questioning whether or not their allegiance is to Christ. He's, he's saying, here's how you're supposed to live. And the slave master does not represent Christ. Christ is Christ. But serve your master as if they were Christ. Colossians 3, verse 17, it says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God and the Father through him. Make sense so far? Ephesians chapter 6, it continues, and it keeps spelling out what, it, what this means and qualifies it more and more and more. And it says, verse 6, verse 6, don't work only as being watched while being watched as people pleasers but as slaves of Christ to do God's will from your heart based on their new identity as slaves belonging to Christ serve human masters not not just to make a good impression not just for good motives and, and this is where I went wrong with the whole being working at the restaurant I was serving as the as the busboy and I was saying I, I'm going to work here and I'm going to be seen for how good I'm working, and then they're going to promote me out of here because this job sucks. And, and, and I wanted to get out as soon as possible, which is like not what they want to see. If you want to get promoted, that's not your attitude you're supposed to have. And, and in fact, he's saying don't, don't, don't work in a way where you just want to be seen for how you're working, but work the same, work consistently. He's teaching against any, any motive, any form of service that's done out of just being seen. Um, and, and so when the master turns his back, do you, do you stop working? Are, are, are you afraid that, that that's my authority over there, and so I'm going to work, and if he's looking, I'll work, and if he's not working, I'm just going to relax and wait until he looks again and, and, and kind of have this type of attitude. In other words, don't be people pleasers. Christians are supposed to be higher callings than that. Who are we trying to please? Is not the people. It's, it's Christ. We belong to someone who's far greater 
of authority, far more honor than any slave owner would have had. And, and we serve someone who God has exalted higher than any earthly or heavenly power. And so he calls slaves to belong to and serve that greatest master, recognizing that their status and their identity, it comes ultimately from belonging to Christ and not from who they belong to on an earthly level. Spoiler alert, we're going to get to at the end, anyone who is a Christian is a slave of Christ. And, and, and so this whole teaching about slaves, we, we ultimately will see ourselves in there as well. Um, but we'll get to that at the end. For Paul, he, he says the highest priority for Christians is to do the will of God. Um, verse, where am I at, six-ish? Yeah, it says, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ to do God's will from your heart. And this is the call for all believers, slave or not. doesn't mean that it's God's will for them to remain in slavery, um, but as long as they're under the structure of authority, serve human masters, human masters as if you're serving Christ himself, not attempting to pull the wool over the eyes of their masters. And so when, they're, when this is true, they're not serving grudgingly, but from the, from the heart or wholeheartedly. Um, and I think of Deuteronomy chapter 6 um, in the Shema, and I talk about the Shema a lot. Every time I preach, I bring up the Shema because I think it's important. But it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And for believing slaves, this means to comply with the orders of human masters with a good attitude, even as hard as that might be. And I can't imagine how hard that could have been. But that's the calling that God's put on us. Serve God with everything, which means... Who's your authority and serve them with everything you have? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7 continues. It says, Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Um, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Serving with a good attitude. It's astonishing what power uh, a, a bad attitude has over your perspectives or how powerful a good attitude has over your perspectives. Uh, I often find myself with a bad attitude, and I'm crabby, and I realize that um, the attitude's my problem, and so then I'll text Craig and say, Craig, call me, I've got a bad attitude. And so then he'll call me, and then he'll tell me all the reasons why my attitude's bad, and so stop it. Which is really helpful, because we have the ability to change our attitudes, right? It, 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 it doesn't change the circumstances, but it, we change the lens of what's true and what's not true, and, and retune how we're living. Um, John Maxwell writes about leadership. He says, people may hear your words, but they feel your attitude. And so what Paul's getting at is that um, ultimately the way of thinking about their service, if the attitude is an attitude that is honorable to God, um, no, it doesn't change their circumstances, but it changes their maybe their temptation to um, lose heart or serve begrudgingly or not uh, be serving as a way that would represent Christ well. Uh, and, then, and he continues, and he says why we're doing this. It says, verse 8, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. Paul wants slaves to know that their good works are noticed by the Creator. Uh, and like how uh, I'm thinking about times when I was in the basement of the restaurant cleaning the poop off the floor. And, and in my mind, that's like a slavery and, and how messed up that is of, of what slavery actually was like. But there's stuff that people don't see, they don't want to think about, they don't want to know about. No boss will ever know. And, and Paul's saying, hey, the, create, the creating God, he's looking after us, he cares for us, he sees us, and, and he notices the things that we're doing. And they can be assured that there's a future reward coming. And I don't know what that reward is, and I'm tempted. Like, I don't want to get too caught up on, like, everything I do out of a reward because I feel like a dog that way. But it's, it's, it's comforting for me to know that no matter what I'm doing, there's a God who's noticing, even if no one else notices. And, and if it's done out of a worshipful heart, there's going to be some sort of conversation with God about it. And, and maybe the reward is just well done, and that's, that's enough. Next, the, the, the passage, it, it turns attention to the slave masters. But before we get there, just reviewing for a second of, of how Paul wants slaves to live as Christians. One, he wants them to obey with a deep respect and fear. Deep respect and fear for their authority. Not from terror, but from respect. And I think about how sometimes in the military, I've read that you sometimes need to salute the rank and not the person. And how that might be the case here. 
where the person, our, our, the authority that the slave has might be a terrible person who we have zero respect for, but they're the authority over us, and so there's this salute that happens. Uh, two, they're supposed to have pure motives, innocent from any improper motivation. They're supposed to serve consistently, wholeheartedly, not only what's seen as people pleasers, but knowing that Christ is watching what's being done. We're supposed to remember that Christ is the ultimate authority. He's the greatest master, and so serve with a good attitude, assume the best, Serve in a way that's informed by the truth that we belong to God and not um, it's not just about us. God's involved in this whole process. In other words, Paul's telling people, the slaves, serve in a way where you're thinking about the end times. The eschatological perspective is, God, you're going to talk with God about this at the end of the day. Serve in a way that you're thinking about that, that conversation. And this is a high calling. I think this is super, super hard for us to live out, for anyone to live out, even on our good days, without slavery, at, with at-will employee work conditions where we get paid a lot of money. It's hard to live out all these different things that Paul's teaching. And it's even harder on the days where we're feeling like we're being abused. So then Paul, he, he moves on to slave owners in chapter 6, verse 9. He says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way, without threatening them. Really, Paul? Are you telling me how I'm supposed to treat my property in my house? That seems like a violation of my rights. But he, 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 tells, slave, he tells slaves to behave. And, and, and hey, slave, behave the, the, as being like the slave of the month every single month that possible. Be the, be the star slave that everyone else is supposed to model after. Sure, I like it when God says that, but if I'm the slave owner, don't 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 tell me the hell I'm supposed to, to be treating my slaves. And, and he says, treat them in the exact same way as what everything that he was telling the slaves themselves. Says they should treat them with deep respect and fear, not from this stance of authority and I'm in charge and you're not, but instead out of this respect. Treat them treat them this way consistently, not just when other people are watching, when people are like, I don't know. Everyone's seen that that happy couple at church. It seems like everyone's great, but then at home, you kind of wonder if things are not great. And he said, don't don't do that either. Be, treat your when people see how you're treating your slaves, have that be the same as you treat them at home when no one was watching. Needless to say, this, this was not the typical way that owners treated their slaves. This would have been a really hard teaching for the, the listeners. And part of the slave owner's attitude toward the slave was to include the abandoning of threats. And if you're not making threats anymore, what else are you not doing? You're not carrying out those threats. And so the, the way that you you interact with the slaves is, is no longer these punishments, but instead you have to figure something else out. And then Paul continues, verse 9, it says, knowing that the Lord in heaven is both their Lord and yours. And there's no favoritism with him. The principal motive for all of this is knowing that my God and their God is the same God. That, 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 that's the whole motive. They are under the same authority of a master. And so if I'm thinking that I'm in charge, I get to do what I want, don't tell me what to do, who's really the master there? It's me, but what Paul's saying is we are all under God's authority, and so live like it. So much of Christian living comes back to remembering that God is God and that we are not. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. This attribute of God of not showing favoritism was like the same thing that Paul built his whole foundation on Jews and Gentiles all being accepted in the kingdom of God that matters so much for us today as not Jews as being part of the kingdom. He's using that same principle and saying, okay, he shows no favoritism. He doesn't care who, who's the slave owner and who's the slave. He, it, it's a level playing field. And so live like that. Essentially, treat slaves the same way God treats them. And, and so what do we do with that today? We don't have slaves, and it's tempting to skip over this. And, and I kind of teased earlier that we tend to take this to meaning um, employer-employee relationships. 
The thing is that none of what Paul's saying here is contingent on an ownership type of relationship. None of this says, hey, slaves, be nice and never leave your master because they own you. Instead, it's, hey, you, you, believe, you belong to the creator, so act like it. And that applies to all of us, no matter what authority we have or what authority that we are under. And I got to be honest, as I was starting to read this, I was really hoping that it was just lazy eisegesis, lazy interpretation, saying, well, we don't have slaves today, but, and the Bible is sufficient for everything, so it's got to mean something, so let's just apply it to work, because we got to apply it somewhere. And I was really hoping that would be like the, the, just a lazy way to apply this, but the more that I started studying and reading, the more I realized that um, equating a Roman slave to as an employee, that, that's being lazy. A Roman slave is not an employee. Life was not great as a Roman slave. It was coercive ownership, not at-will employment. But that does not mean that teaching does not imply. Instead, it applies even more to any sort of relationship within our system that we have today. Employer-employee, but it also could be soldier and colonel, or prisoner or warden, or students or teacher, or athletes and coach. But anywhere where there is authority structure in place, even property owner and contractor, the people you hire to come in your house. Like, if you're a Christian, live like he's actually a lord of your life. Act like it. It should show up in your life. And so given our current context, we're going to talk a lot about the the employer-employee piece because I think that applies to most of us. But if you are the student or the contractor or if you report in any way to anyone who has an authority over you, listen up because all, all of this applies. And so the first principle here is that we, we ought to treat our managers or supervisors with deep respect. Because they're positioned over you, deep respect. Even if you think they don't deserve it, sometimes we've got to salute the position and not the person if that's the case. And second, we're supposed to do our work with a pure heart and a good attitude. Um, there's a lot of reasons for deceitful motives that do not please God. And so as workers, do we check our hearts and do a self-evaluation of why am I trying to get what I'm getting? Am I just trying to serve myself and my own idol, or am I trying to worship God with what I'm doing? Third, don't just perform to make a good impression. Um, when the boss is gone, how's your job performance? The Lord's aware of everything we do, and if our hearts were serving him with our jobs, we'll be giving our all no matter what, whether the boss is looking or not. Fourth, uh, give God's will top priority in our life and work. Ultimately, we're serving Christ, and we will answer him at the end of the age, and so God's will should always overrule any wrong attitude or behavior that we might have. Um, and, and so even if there's something that is clearly wrong or unethical that our boss is telling us to do, we're, we're serving God's will and not the master's will, and so that there might be times when serving God comes first. And so I imagine there was several situations where the slaves were commanded to worship this idol or a female to have sex with their, their master or diff, different power dynamics where things were not good and not honorable. And, and Paul's saying, hey, slaves, live in a way where you're doing God's will. And that would have been really hard. But God is God first. And that's what he says to how we're supposed to live. Fifth, um, we're supposed to remember that the Lord expects us to do good works, and he notices when we do them, and he'll reward us at the end. And I really hope it's like just God being proud of us and saying, yeah, you're mine, rather than being like, here's your trinket. I don't want the trinket. I want, I want communion with God. I, I, don't, I don't want a trophy saying, hey, you, you did a good job. Good for you. I want intimacy and communion with God, and I think that's, that's coming. Now, for all of us who are in authority positions, employers or supervisors, those who manage in any way, um, all of this stuff that we just talked about applies to you as well. And I think this is contem the contemporary wisdom of the day. If you go to Barnes & Noble and you look at the leadership shelf, you're going to find very similar things. Basically, it's don't be a jerk. If you're a teenager, that sounds familiar. It comes from stuff like this. It's be, treat your people under you as servants. But what's unique is that the reason for doing it is because we're under God. 
and God's will and God's power and God's authority. And so there's two specifics, um, discourages the youth of threats. And so this doesn't mean that employees should be held account, not be held accountable for their performance, but it's more about motivation. Why, why are we trying to get our employees to work and, and to do well? Um, it's better to motivate than to threaten, obviously. And then second, he appeals to avoid favoritism. And this had me thinking for a while of why not, but when, he, when he, we claim favoritism or nepotism or any, anything of the sort, it, it, it's greatly demoralized into all the, all the rest of the people as well. Um, and so the key thing for all of us is to remember who's, whose authority are we under? It's God's, and so act like it. <laughs> The day that we're in the position of authority and we say, I'm in charge, what I say goes, or maybe, we don't even, maybe we're not even bold enough or honest enough with ourselves to say that, to say, I'm in charge, so what I say goes, but maybe that's our attitude and that's how we're actually serving. Who's actually in charge of our lives at that point? If we're so caught up with the power, you you are your God. God is not. And, and so here's the charge. We need to repent. We need to remember God is God. We are not. He's our authority, and so act like it. And for those of us who are not in a position of authority, and maybe won't be for a long time, or the workers, the laborers, the yes-men, um, we should serve not grudgingly, but from the heart, wholeheartedly, from the soul. Uh, I often question my motives. I'm, kind of, I'm one of those guys who I'll question my motives so much that I'll, I'll question my judgment of what my motives are. And so if someone will ask me, or I'll, I'll be talking to someone about trying to figure out what my motive is and whatever I conclude, I kind of assume whatever I conclude is actually the wrong thing as well. And I get so lost in my motives of trying to figure out why am I doing what I'm doing. And I get stuck in the scary loop of trying to, it's just self-centered what, about me. And instead... I'm asking entirely the wrong question. Instead, the question should be, am I doing what I'm doing as I'm doing it for the Lord? If you're, if, if you're serving God, you're not questioning what your motive is. I'm trying to hit home with my teenagers. Everything we do is worship. Everything is, is praising God or praising something else. We're, we're just get skewed and, and off target of what we're actually worshiping. What Paul's teaching here is, is, is that if you have a boss who belittles you, or a manager who gaslights you, or a coach that won't give you a chance, we're supposed to obey them as we would obey Christ, with an attitude that would give Christ. And, and, and for the slave, um, I can't imagine that, because you're stuck there. You, Today, if you're in that situation, we can do stuff about it, and we'll talk about that. Um, two sidebars before we're done. First one, Paul did not condone slavery. Again, don't go home teaching people that Jesus says slavery is good. It's not. It does not say that. And instead, he, 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 like I said, he thought that Jesus was coming very soon. Social economic revolution was not um, something that was... Ours to fix. Jesus is going to come to fix that. He's going to fix it very soon. And, and so how we're we supposed to live our life is given the current context, here's how we live with Jesus as, as Lord. Um, it, it says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let that trouble you. Although if you can gain freedom, do so. And in Philemon 16, Paul appeals to Philemon for Onesimus' emancipation. Um, it's my conviction that if you report to an authority today that you are unable to serve in a way that honors God, um, it's our responsibility to also find a way to serve someone that we can serve in a way that honors God. If you are unwilling to change your, your context and your workplace and your um, your current system of life and, and everything around it is not God-honoring, I got to ask the question, what are we trying to honor? It might be success or status or fame or, or, or security, one of our many idols that we're actually worshiping instead. And so if you're serving someone that you cannot serve in a way that honors God, do something about it. Put God first. Uh, this, this, the, the second sidebar is about modern slaves. And 
I don't really have time for it, but I can't teach about slavery in the Bible and then just ignore that there's 40 million slaves today. And, and, and so 40 million slaves today, 71% of them are women and girls, and this is evil and it's messed up, and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to wrap my mind around that fact, and I can't imagine preaching this sermon right now to people who are actually enslaved today. Like, it just doesn't... I, I can't imagine it, but God's message doesn't change, I don't think. His message is still the same slaves honor God as God. And, and, and so what do we do about it from the outside looking in? Because none of us are slaves to, here today. Oh, I think of Matthew 25 where Jesus says, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And whatever you did not do for when the least of these, you did not do for me. And so maybe I'm just a hippie, but when I read scripture, I, I see social awareness. I, I, I see social justice. I see uh, there, there might be product boycott. There might be all sorts of different ways where we find justice, and that's not what the point of the sermon is. But I can't, I can't read about slavery and then just be blind to the fact that there's slaves today, and we have a God who cares for the poor and the vulnerable and the needy. And so I'll just lay that out there. And so coming back to all of this, as, as we finish up, how can we live this out together? The, the entire point of the sermon is if Jesus is Lord, and that's a big if, because a lot of times we want Jesus as Savior to get us out of hell, but not as Lord. But if he's Lord of our life, we need to act like it. And sometimes we'll, we'll say things like uh, the way we live our lives as Christians will make other people ask questions about Jesus, and so that's kind of like evangelism. And we usually say this to kids as be nice at school and maybe people will notice Jesus. And, and we kind of make it all cute and fuzzy, but I think it's true as well that the way we live our lives at work will point people to Jesus. People will notice, your boss will notice if you're the person who is continually being honest on your timesheet. If you're the person who um, is, is the hard worker who they can trust to show up. If you're the person who is, it's, it's almost like you're treating that person, that your boss as a God, but, and if they're not a Christian, they don't really know that's what's going on. They, they're just like, wow, this person's really awesome. But, but really, we're trying to serve our boss or our company as if we're serving God himself because God sees it that way. Are we living our lives in a way that we have an image that represents Jesus and says, this is who's in charge, he's worth following? How powerful would it be when, when, when people, when Craig, Craig has his business with all of his employees and, and, and they say, why does Craig treat us this way? And they ask questions of, of why, why are they treating him this way? And they won't have to ask very many questions until they realize the why behind it, and it's because he has a different Lord other than himself. Why does Veronica log her timesheet the way she does when everyone else adds 15 minutes at the end of the shift and they round it up? How come she says, here's when I left? Well, everything we do, it ought to point to our Lord. Everything we do is worshiping something, and if it's God, our life should show like it. And so the hard part of all this is that last piece. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Lord, everybody loves the Jesus that gets us out of hell. No, people don't like the Jesus who claims our entire life and has our entire life shaped around it. And, and so we have a God who's a jealous God. He wants our entire allegiance. He, he's Savior, King, Jesus, all of it or none of it. And the book of Matthew, it spells out how Jesus is King. That, that's what the whole book is about. He, Jesus is not just Savior, but he's, he's King. People expected a warrior king that would come and wipe out the Romans and then restore Judaism to being the, the, the way. And Peter wanted to be the right-hand hero. And instead what they got was a Jesus who was the foot washer, the, the, the sacrificial lamb, the, the Messiah in every way he needed to be and not at all the way people wanted him to be. And so if we think about just the story and how we got to where we're at, we abandoned God in the garden, we kicked him off the throne, we disrupted our entire system saying that I want to be God, not Jesus, not God. And then the rest of the Old Testament is God working out how to woo his people back to him. Not not by force, not by coercion, but how can he, he, he's acting in a way that we might fall in love with him and change our lives because of who he is. But then every time that people started to do this, we, we, we went through this whole cycle of apostasy. We say Jesus is awesome when life gets comfortable. And then because life is comfortable, we don't need God anymore. So we start doing our own thing again. And then stuff falls apart. And it's just this, this cycle on and on and on. And so when the Old Testament ends, there's like this period of 400 years when everything seems hopeless and God's not talking to his people anymore. And, and it, 
there's this crying out for a Messiah, and, and then we get this virgin girl born with a baby born in the barn named Jesus, and then he has to flee to Egypt as a refugee, and this is the Messiah. And so Jesus, he lived a sinless life, obedient to the Father. He revealed the fullness of who God is. Then he submits to the Father. He dies on the cross. He lays in the grave for three days, separated, defeated. But then he raises and he conquers death, defeats the curse of sin, and he makes a way for God's beloved, his children, to come back to that garden scene, walking the cool of the day with his people. This is the gospel. This is what it means. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, Jews, in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so then whatever eats the bread, sorry, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin and against the body and blood of the Lord. And so let the person examine himself in this way, let him eat the bread and drink the cup. The, the, the worship team's going to come up now and we're, and we're going to segue into our last song and we're going to have this time of communion. And, and the act of taking communion doesn't save us, Right? Communion doesn't save us, but it's an act of worship and remembering that Jesus is Lord. That whole point about Jesus as Lord and not just Savior, that's what we're remembering right now as, as we take communion. And, and so we're functionally rededicating ourselves, saying, this is who I am, this is where I stand, and we're saying that Jesus is Lord of our lives. And we take it as a community together, not in the privacy of our home, but we take it together and we say, we're in this together. And so here at Oak Grove, even if you're visiting, if, if you say Jesus is your Lord and Savior and King of your life, then, then by all means, join us, take communion with us. Um, I, I, if you're one of the people who likes Jesus as Savior, get me out of hell, but not so much King or Lord, um, talk to someone. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to Craig. Talk to um, Pastor Matt. Talk to, talk to anyone and, and say, what does it mean to actually make Jesus Lord of my life and not just the Savior? Because you can't just have Savior. It doesn't work. And, and, and so when you're ready to receive the elements, there's, there's, there's going to be four stations. You can go ahead and go to one of the stations. And if you are um, not wanting to get up or it's difficult to get up, just raise your hand and someone will bring it to you. Um, if you feel led by the Spirit to have a conversation with someone to, before you reaffirm your commitment to Christ, um, have that conversation. And maybe it's just the start of a conversation. Hey, I, I've... Is this true? Did this hurt? We need to talk about this. Can we talk about it later? And, and just start the conversation. Make things right. And then, by all means, come and, and, and share in communion. Um, the application today, it, it, it's super weighty. The message is simple. Basically, it's don't be a jerk. But the application of it is super, super weighty. And it all comes back about who is God. And he is God and we are not. We all have him as our authority, so we need to act like it. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you. Get to be here in this room with your word. I pray for uh, the, just this upcoming week that we might analyze the things in our lives and, and ask the question of what are the things that we are worshiping as our functional gods? Is it you or is it something else? What is the authority that we report to? Uh, convict us, challenge us, shape us, mold us, break us, do what it takes so that you are the Lord and Savior of our lives. We say this in your name. Amen.